Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to another episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. I am your host, Adam Burns, and joining me once again is Courtney Pine. Courtney, how are you doing this week? Everything all good with you? Yeah, very good. Um, good, um, good evening, everyone. Hope everyone's doing well. So in this episode, guys, of course, if you're familiar with us now, you'd know what we're all about. And uh, we like to talk about the current topics going on in the Formula One world. But obviously, on occasion, we do like to do a few episodes where we look at certain situations have been happening and try to sort of give our opinion or have a debate on what we really think. And one of the topics for this episode in particular is the decline of the Williams team. Now, for those of you familiar with the current events in Formula One, will know that Williams posted a operating loss of around 13 million or 12.9 million pounds to be exact in 2019. And as a result of the current COVID-19 pandemic, they've kind of been forced into a position where they've had to seek a new, not just a new title sponsor, but some external investment following the termination of their agreement with Rocket, who they've been with for the last couple of years. And it kind of gave us an idea for this episode. A lot of people talking about whether or not Williams will sell part of their team or the entire team. We thought it might be a good idea to kind of look at where it's all gone wrong for Williams. Now, this isn't something that's happened overnight. So for you, younger Formula One fans. This isn't something that's been happening since 2014, perhaps, where they were competing with the likes of Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull at the beginning of the turbo hybrid era. And we're going to be looking at something where, well, not something in particular, we're going to be looking at how this decline has really been happening since the late 90s. Now, as I mentioned, for those of you younger fans that won't know, Williams' last world championship was back in 1997, where Jacques Villeneuve, won the Drivers' Championship, and it culminated a two-year period in 96 and 97 where Williams had dominated those two seasons with Damon Hill and Jack Villeneuve, respectively, 
and winning those two Constructors' Championships to boot. The Williams team in general won nine championships, uh, nine Constructors' Championships in its entire history. Only Ferrari, as a constructor, has won more than they have. And their championships records, Courtney, dates back to 1980. Now, we're talking about a team that's been in the sport since 1978. Considering how successful Ferrari have been, uh, relatively speaking, it's very easy to say that as an independent team, Williams have been immensely successful in the sport. And as a result, it is quite a shame that we look at them in today's world in an almost unthinkable position or unfathomable position to imagine that they would be in, considering how successful they were in the late 90s. I mean, yeah, they've, um, they've gone from being the most, well, most feared team, you know, around the, uh, particularly the late 80s and the uh, early 90s, to almost being seen as a bit of a joke within the F1 community. And uh, as a fan of a sport, it's quite sad to see, if anything. Yeah, of course. And the 90s is a decade was pretty much seen as the introduction of Schumacher, obviously, sadly, the death of Ayrton Senna whilst driving for Williams. We'll never know, obviously, what he could have done in that Williams car. The later part of that decade belonged very much to McLaren, but it was very much Williams's decade, the 90s. They very much controlled that. And as I said, for you younger fans of Formula One, hearing us talking about the success of the Williams team, considering how they are now, you never would have thought that they were literally the powerhouse and the dominant force in Formula 1 in the 90s. They very much were. The innovations they brought in in the um, early 90s were impressive. Absolutely. I mean, we look through the list of drivers that they had. They had Nigel Mansell, Alain Prost, Damon Hill, Jacques Villeneuve, all world champions in that team. Nelson Piquet, Ayrton Senna for a brief time, of course. These drivers really were the, if you like, the creme de la creme of Formula 1 at the time. And throughout history, these guys are revered and remembered for their successes, most notably in the Williams team, perhaps with the exception of Alain Prost, despite winning one world championship with them. It really was a success story for a man, Frank Williams, who had a vision to set up his independent team in a sport that was heavily dominated by the manufacturer teams, and to some degree still is, but to break that mould and then go on to make Williams the success story that it is, it really is a crying shame that they have ended up in this position. But as we said before, this is something that's been happening over the last quarter of a century. It's been a yeah. slow decline, but a decline nonetheless, which had its bumps. And obviously, if you have different opinions to us and obviously have comments based on what we say in this episode regarding the debate itself, anything contrast and anything you support, do please let us know. And uh, lend us your ears and join in with us for the next I'd reckon 50 minutes or so, perhaps, or at least we try. <laughs> we're going to go yeah, over. We're going we're gonna to do it this week. Yeah, we're, go, we're going to go over why we think the decline at Williams was something that it was almost written on the wall, obviously, what contributed to that decline. So, yeah, I think the first thing that we need to look at, of course, Courtney, with this decline is the loss of key personnel we need to address. Now, the two people in my mind that come. Uh, to the fore when I think of that are Adrian Newey and Patrick Head. Yeah. And uh, Adrian Newey, obviously legendary chief designer, arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest designer of a Formula One car in its history. William's success... I'll give that my idea. Yeah. <laughs> William's success over the 1990s in particular with drivers like, as we've mentioned, Nigel Mansell, 
Alain Prost, Damon Hill and Jacques Villeneuve was very much culminated by the dominating partnership between Williams and Renault as the engine suppliers. And this was spearheaded by the technical director, Patrick Head, and chief designer, Adrian Newey. Now, during the period 1992 to 1997, Williams had won 52 Grand Prix, a combined total of nine drivers and constructors titles in that six-year period, which is incredible. During that 1997 season, though, this is where things started to get a bit sour. Adrian Newey, there was always the stories about his influence in the Williams team. The, the team itself was very much controlled by Sir Frank Williams and Patrick Head with a it was reported a 70-30% share respectively and Adrian Newey himself felt a diminishing presence of himself in in terms of decision making and obviously key decisions that Williams were taking moving forward this got to the point where there was a lot of falling out between the three of them and Adrian was looking at other options and when Williams were driving in the 1997 season, there was a lot of restructuring going on with the FW19 that Jacques Villeneuve and Heinz Harold Frentzen were successful with. And mm-hmm. during that season, Adrian had moved over to McLaren. So you could almost see the impact immediately of Adrian's presence in the McLaren team, and obviously what Williams had lost. And it's no surprise that McLaren went on to win in 98 and 99 in Adrian's first two seasons with them. And you could almost see immediately how big of an impact that was for Williams. They had lost the best designer of a Formula One car, not just in that era, but arguably of all time. And they just weren't able to replace him. And Adrian, well, yeah, it's a hole that yeah. couldn't be filled. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Adrian himself obviously went on to enjoy success at McLaren, as we mentioned, and then went on to enjoy further success at Red Bull in 2010 to 2014. So his influence was being felt at other teams and was bringing them to success. Success, you could argue, that Williams could have continued to have and may have even ranked them in history alongside even Ferrari. I mean, we're talking about the elite of the elite in Ferrari where no one has come close to really challenging that level of success, at least not at this time. And Williams, with those personnel, really did have the tools to make that reality. But alas, that wasn't to be with Adrian. And you could argue that the car itself really suffered in the years that followed. I mean, we go on further talking about... I mean, we talked about Adrian Newey. I mean, Patrick Head as well. We should mention him, of course, Courtney. I forget to mention Patrick Head. But Patrick Head, obviously the technical director at Williams, had a big influence as well. Of course, he stayed at the team when Adrian moved on. I remember hearing a quote from Frank Williams back in 2010, Courtney, where he actually once said he'd wish Patrick Head was a few decades younger because of how strong his influence is at the team. Very much the charismatic character, very much the man, the driving force to sort of culminate the Williams project um, and, and obviously make them into the team that they are today and keep that going. And he was pivotal to Williams' success in the 1980s and 90s. But unfortunately, he couldn't stay on as technical director forever. Now, we're fasting forward to 2004, where Patrick Head had moved on. He'd moved aside into the role of engineering director, I believe. And he'd handpicked Sam Michael, who was hand-chosen by Patrick Head, um, to succeed him and obviously take over as technical director. And this is kind of where... Williams' problems started in that regard, following Patrick Head. 
some the problem is, and so, some, sometimes you know it. You can see it in other sports, or you know, sometimes in everyday life. When you've when you've had like certain people in positions for such a long time, it's sometimes very difficult to fill in the void, and it affects the culture of the team. Like if you have a look at football, you have you see that Manchester United have never been the same since uh, Alex Ferguson left. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree with that one. Is and I mean the football examples. It's a really good example where you know you people can relate to football teams that have had managers in the past that, as you mentioned, Sir Alex Ferguson has brought loads of success to Manchester United, and they haven't really been able to replace him. The structure at the club, the players on the pitch, the players they're able to bring in, and obviously that translates into not winning the Premier League since he's been away. They, I don't think they have. Since he's uh, not been manager, the best that they've managed is to win the FA Cup or the Europa League under Jose Mourinho. And it's a similar impact that hit Williams when Patrick Head and Adrian Nui both left the team, obviously at different times. It was six years apart, six, seven years apart. But with Patrick Head, Williams definitely felt this even more because there was always a sense about Williams, even post Adrian Nui, that they were still able to challenge, particularly in 2003, challenge for a world championship against the might of Michael Schumacher and Ferrari. But obviously following his, uh, how can I describe, moving aside into this engineering director role, it was more like a a reduced duty kind of role where he'd still have some level of responsibility, but it was more in a manner where he would play a supporting role to Sam Michael. Now, let's get something straight. I, I'm not discrediting Sam Michael. He was very well regarded in the Formula One paddock and he was very much hand-chosen by Patrick Head to really spearhead Williams' next generation that proved to be fairly successful up to 2004, but then obviously declined after that. And the problem Williams had after Patrick Head was the lack of stability. Now, Courtney, you know as well as I do, especially in current Formula One, where Mercedes have been so dominant, stability is the key. And I think and I think that's ever present in every single team that has had an era of dominance in the sport. And we can look back to McLaren for a couple of years, Ferrari in the early 2000s, Red Bull in the early 2010s, and of course Mercedes since the beginning of this turbo hybrid era. The one thing they all have in common is key personnel they have in their team have stayed in that team. They've earned that trust. The teams have backed them unanimously with their projects and visions. And they've been successful. Of course, it's not a guarantee yeah, for success. Because, they, because you have that sustained success, it almost develops a culture. And everyone in the team is happy to be a part of it. So why would they want to leave and go elsewhere? Exactly. And we cite Mercedes as a brilliant example of this. Because this a lot of the people at the Mercedes team, bear in mind this is 2020, have been with that outfit since it began as Ponda when they took over the BAR team back in 2004. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2004. So 16, 17 years, a lot of those guys have been there. And Mercedes have won so much in the sport, even at Braun as well. You can't, in my mind, you can't have that level of success without nurturing talent and having personnel there, key personnel that have that trust and backing from everybody around them to really succeed over a long period of time. It's not something you can just turn up with and succeed overnight. I mean, we talk about Mercedes being brilliant. They didn't just turn up and were successful. It took 
I mean, you say it took four years, but it was really longer than that before they became the success story that they are now. And it was the same thing with Williams. Williams are very successful early on in their introduction in Formula One, but they had a lot of personnel there that had been there for a long time, like Adrian Newey and Patrick Head. And to talk about Williams' instability in this time, I mean, I'm just going to run through a few names of technical directors that were very, very good, but they just never really had the time or the backing for a long-term project to really come to fruition. I mean, we're talking people like Mike Clothman, uh, Mark Gillen, Pat Simmons and Paddy Lowe. I mean, Paddy Lowe, his resume before leaving Williams was incredible. I mean, he had a successful spell in Williams back in the early 90s. I mean, if we cite an earlier episode that we talked about, Corny, about uh, your favourite cars in Formula One, I remember Paddy Lowe was very much a part of the project with the 92 and 93 Williams that Adrian Newey and Patrick Head were part of. It was like a trinity between those three in Paddy Lowe's younger days. And obviously that very much inspired this um, reunion they had with him back in 2017. Yeah, and it was also a part of the success during the earlier part of the turbo hybrid era. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, McLaren in the late 90s as well, he was very much instrumental in their success as well. So... You have those people there. They're all people with very, very glittering resumes that should be not necessarily warranting success, but there's a very good chance that they're going to achieve it. And the problems William had, as well as the instability, were a lot more deeper in the surface than just moving personnel around. But it definitely contributed to that. And I think that kind of moves us on to the next bit I wanted to talk about with Williams was the issues that it had with the car in particular. Now, We talked about the issues they had back in 1998 after they'd won their world championship with Jacques Villeneuve in 1997 in a car that massively dominated the field. And of course, the only reason why that championship was taken to the wire because of how good Michael Schumacher was. But obviously, that was the second year or the first real year that Ferrari had with Schumacher in terms of their development, which was slowly building into the dynasty that we know and remember it for back in the early 2000s. And with Williams, as I mentioned before, they the first signs where the decline was starting to begin or difficulties started to arise for them back in 1998. They had the, um, I think it was like the dark brown orange livery. I think it was the Winfield cigarettes or something like that. Mm-hmm. The old Woody Woodpecker car, I like to call it. Um, definitely have a look, guys, if you haven't seen it. The Woody Woodpecker in- inspired Williams 98 and 99 Williams as well. And Renault have withdrew from the sport in 98 as an engine supplier. Now, for those of you that didn't know, Williams were massively successful in the 90s. And a big part of that was their partnership with Renault. I think a lot you'd agree, Courtney, the Renault engine back in the 90s was absolutely incredible. I mean, considering that this was the engine that really stopped the dominance that Honda had had with McLaren in the early in the early 90s, late 80s, if you like. It does really say a lot. And, of course, we mentioned the famous 1988 Williams, the MP4-4, how brilliant that Honda engine was. And Williams came in with the Renault-powered engines that really was instrumental in their success in the early 90s. It took some doing. And Williams never really recovered for a good couple of years after losing Renault. And, of course, they ran revised Renault engines in 98 and 99, but... The development on these engines were run by companies like Mechachrome and Supertech. 
I'd imagine if you're not a massive fan of Formula One or if you're a younger fan of Formula One, you'll probably be saying, who's Mechachrome? Who's Supertech? Well, they're not bad. Let's put it that way. But relatively speaking, they won't exactly go down in the Hall of Fame of Formula One engine manufacturers or uh, engine developers, relatively no. speaking. And it, it kind of culminated in a former powerhouse that Williams Renault was. It really struggled and... It was easy to see how they were overtaken by the likes of Mercedes-Benz powering McLaren and Ferrari, of course, powering Ferrari. There was a seismic change in a once insurmountable dominant force like Williams just becoming almost like an afterthought overnight. It was amazing how a team as dominant as Williams after 96 and 97 just completely subsided almost immediately, immediately and teams like McLaren in particular and Ferrari just took over. It was almost as if you remember the 90s, Courtney. And if you're not a more veteran fan of the sport, you'd almost be forgiven for thinking that the 90s were pretty much the McLaren-Ferrari era, even though yeah. they weren't. Nothing nothing like well, it. Well, Williams are a prime example, you know, as to why you always need to be at your best and have the best personnel with Formula 1 because it is the pinnacle of motorsport and everything needs to be on point to stay on top or as you've proven it's shown to even survive in the sport everything needs to be on point yeah you're absolutely right could not agree with that more and this this was the thing for Williams it really tended to struggle and obviously losing drivers like Jacques Villeneuve in the early 2000s after Williams were not successful to join BAR, it kind of really fed to this decline that Williams was starting to realise and was having a hard time to recover from. However, the worst signs for positivity and improvement, they'd managed to secure the famous partnership they had with BMW in 2000. And this, this ran for six seasons between 2000 and 2005. Now, at the time, the BMW partnership really came around this idea that BMW had long-term ambitions to become a manufacturer team in the sport and for a lot of manufacturers usually the way into Formula One now and it's still the same is to buy into an independent team and then spend some time building up this partnership with them and then eventually taking over and these were the aspirations that BMW had and BMW as an engine supplier really were a force to be reckoned with in such a short space of time they'd taken Williams to a point where they were competing at the front of the midfield to competing for a world championship in particular in 2003 and this was as we said during the Ferrari Michael Schumacher dominating era in the early 2000s in 2003 Ferrari were by their epically high standards they were not really meeting those and after an incredible 2002 campaign, they really weren't able to get the most out of the 2003 GA car that they had. And this really allowed Williams and BMW as a partnership to really take it to them with the likes of Ralph Schumacher and Juan Pablo Montoya really taking it to Schumacher. And you can argue to some degree that they were very unfortunate not to win that championship. The BMW engine was very much widely regarded as the most powerful engine in Formula One at the time. Well, yeah, it was almost a missed opportunity for Williams that season. It really was. And, I mean, this partnership itself, it brought 10 wins, which 10 wins you might not think is a lot over a six-year period, but bear in mind, 
I think like 80% of those race wins were won by Ferrari and Michael Schumacher. Yeah, so exactly. that's not really something to be snuffed at. And we said it was a championship contender. I mean, we, we mentioned the BMW engine. We talk about how significant engines are in Formula 1. Of course, you can't just win a world championship with a powerful engine and a car. The car has to be good as well. And I think this was the big problem for Williams. They had the engine. They had the power behind them to take Ferrari and Mercedes-Benz in particular on at their own game and beat them. I mean, Renault to a degree because they returned in 2003 as a works team. But it was very much fight the fight with Ferrari and Mercedes-Benz. And whilst the engine itself was incredible, the chassis really didn't live up to those standards. I mean, this was in part caused by the loss of Nui, as we said, this, this was felt over a long period of time. And the fact that they really struggled to keep up with the aerodynamic evolution within the upper echelons of the F1 paddock in Ferrari, McLaren, and as we mentioned, even Renault to some degree. And that's something that they struggled with, Williams. They were never really able in a fast-changing environment in terms of aero packages, because we had rule regulation changes almost on a yearly basis, Courtney, if you remember. There was a real desire and a real objective from the FIA and even in some regards Bernie Eccleston tried to try and change the rules to a degree, and as often as they did, to try and stop this dominance of Schumacher-Ferrari, but it just wasn't happening. And because of that, there was a lot of money and investment put into these teams to really try and stick with the curve and try and find a mark and try and find a way to beat their rivals. And Williams just weren't able to to live to that. They always seemed to struggle with the chassis and aero package changes, especially in this period following the loss of Adrian Newey. They just never really were able to keep up. I think the exception that comes to mind would be in 2009, where they had the massive rules change regarding the aero packages. This was following the, the uh, economic global economic crash in yeah. 2007. And Formula One made an objective to try and make the sport a lot cheaper, more cost effective, and make the aero That's packages really a lot more simpler. And Williams were one of the teams that we... And again, we talked about this in a previous episode where they'd exploited a loophole in the rules regarding the diffuser. And Williams were able to develop a double diffuser, which... The likes of Braun, Toyota, yeah. Red Bull, to a degree, were able to develop their own versions of. But unlike the the former that we mentioned, Williams were never really able to live up to that. I think if I'm looking through their results in that period, um, up until 2013, they hadn't achieved a position higher than fifth place. And they'd only achieved that fifth place on two occasions. So it's a definite fall from grace for a team that's used to sipping champagne on a weekly basis rather than licking their wounds and celebrating a fifth place. It's not something that you'd be proud of, given Williams' heritage and history and infrastructure that they have. And uh, they wouldn't really be near the front again uh, until 2014 in the turbo hybrid era, where they were really, they really were back to some regard. They really did, you know, come back to the fore. Um, but the engine issue was a problem for Williams. It became even more of a factor for Williams' decline. And we talked about instability of personnel, Corny. But, I mean, and this is quite funny. Every time I look at this, I find this amazing how this actually happened. But Williams was suffering a plight of trying to find the best financial deal possible, especially during the global economic crisis. And this resulted yeah. in changes to engines. I'll just run through the list. So 
since uh, 2005, when they broke away from BMW, Williams had made as many as five changes in engine suppliers until 2014. And I'll go through how it was. So since they changed from BMW in 2005, um, they went to Cosworth, then to Toyota, back to Cosworth, then to Renault, and then in a deal that endures to this day and runs up until 2025, they're now with Mercedes. That's probably why they've uh, they made the Mercedes deal a long-term deal, because they've learned from previous mistakes. Yeah, that and... Um, it, it, Obviously, as a res- result of this, they've had to give up a potential seat at Mercedes to one of their younger drivers in more yeah. recent times. Um, and, and obviously, we'll mention this a bit later on, the topic on the drivers and their recruitment at Williams in the latter, in the more modern era of Formula One. But during that post-BMW era, Williams' engine supply decisions were partly driven by... Um, Sorry, during the post-BMW, following that, they, they were partly driven by the finance, financial situation that was put against them. And they had this need to pay for engines and partly, to, as we mentioned, by the desire to secure the best available option at the time. I mean, the level of instability had cemented Williams' position in the midfield post-2005. Prior to the Williams switch to Mercedes engines, we mentioned already, they'd only achieved two fifth places. And we're talking about a 10-year period. Yeah. Uh, and they were no higher than that. And this is a team that, as we mentioned, had won nine world championships. And amongst everything else, it's you'd never imagine that in as little as a 10-year span that this would be a team. I mean, we've seen teams like Ferrari and McLaren have had similar falls from grace for short periods of time. But they've always bounced back. They've never had it as bad as what Williams have had for this long and I guess one of the big problems Williams have had is and then we're going to talk about this in the second part of this episode is issues with money that has really contributed to that so I think we'll wrap this up for part one there's a lot of stuff that I've been saying on this one as I said let us know what your thoughts on so far obviously we've talked about changing personnel and of course issues with the car but in the second part we'll be talking about stuff uh, that's been out of their control that's really affected their decision making in terms of money and obviously where we go forward from there so good opportunity now to uh, grab yourself a hot drink um take a break for a bit and then we'll see you in the next part of the dnf1 f1 podcast so welcome back to the second part of the dnf1 f1 podcast so just a quick recap obviously we were talking about um, our opinions on Williams and obviously what we feel has contributed to their decline since their last world championship in 1997. And we talked mostly about instability and losing key personnel that they've just really struggled to replace. And of course, the shortcomings that they've had with their car, most notably in the early 2000s, up until the turbo hybrid era. And of course, there have been other stuff that have contributed to that post that era that we'll get into in the second part. But moving on to the next part, that we feel that's contributed. We have to talk about this. And we did touch on this briefly in the first part with the global economic crisis, but the money issues and as a result, taking on paid drivers. Now, this is a big one for Williams because Williams traditionally was a team that prioritised talent over money with its driver lineup, mainly because it didn't need the extra money. It was always one of those teams that wasn't interested in the idea of doing favours for um, manufacturers or engine suppliers that had 
contracted drivers on their lineup and also bringing in people that offered a lot of financial backing to help with the team in terms of their investment. Since 2008, that's kind of changed completely. And I think the first time we saw this William Corning, as we mentioned in 2008, where we started to see change, is the introduction of Kazuki Nakajima alongside um, Nico Rosberg. And the story for the Nakajima situation was he did a one-off race with them at the end of the season, replacing Alexander Wurtz, if you remember him. And Kazuki Nakajima was given a race seat at Williams for 2008 alongside Formula One world champion Nico Rosberg. And the story with this basically was Nakajima was a protege at Toyota. And the global economic crash that happened in 2007 put Williams in a very difficult financial situation. I mean, a lot of teams had this problem, but Williams definitely in particular were really, really struggling. And this put Williams into a difficult position in terms of acquiring a new engine supplier. Now, they had an agreement with Toyota. We mentioned Toyota was one of the five different engine supplier changes that they've made in this period. But they got about in those days. <laughs> yeah, they certainly got about. They had a reputation about them. Um, definitely didn't do them any favours. But, but the Williams team itself, obviously regarding this deal with Toyota, Courtney, um, part of the deal was that Williams had an option or a choice, if you like. They could either buy the engines outright for the season or they could get those engines for free if they had ran a Toyota contracted driver in their car for 2008. Given the financial hardship it was facing, it was a no-brainer for Williams. This was a team we were talking about that at this time their incentives or their drivers or motivation, if you like, for finding a new engine supplier was basically around the best available option for them at the time. And in this case, this was to take on that decision to run Kazuki Nakajima in exchange for getting free Toyota wrenches for 2008. And I wouldn't say Kazuki Nakajima set the um, Formula One world alight. I think his most notable contribution, unfortunately for him, was when he had that incident. I think it was in Brazil or perhaps another race where he had gone into the pit garage too fast into his box and uh, knocked over a couple of his mechanics. Oh, that's embarrassing. Yes, embarrassing for Formula One drivers, considering that they're driving at speeds of over 200 miles an hour almost having Jedi-like reflexes, if you like, and crashing into your own mechanics and personnel that service your car when you're travelling at less than 30 or 40 miles an hour. Um, you wouldn't think it was easy, but once you do that, I can imagine he probably wanted the world to, to open up and just swallow him whole at the time. It was that embarrassing. When it's live, when it's live on bloody world television. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely not the fun thing to do, putting your resume. But I think what's interesting about the Nakajima story with Williams and how it really started the real decline of them in terms of their philosophy on hiring drivers that were talented over paid drivers. What makes it interesting is that there was a similar story back in 1987 regarding Williams's termination of their partnership with Honda when they were their engine suppliers back then. And... The story, like, the story for Honda, one of the big reasons why Honda Williams parted ways in 1987 was over a similar situation where Honda wanted one of their contracted drivers 
to drive for Williams in the 1987 season. And Williams declined, heavily refused this. They did not want a paid driver or a contracted driver outside their own remit driving in the team. And so as a result, this deal didn't happen and Honda and Williams parted company. Now, it's a bit of a bit trivia for you, Courtney. And obviously, guys, play along if you know this as well. Put in the comments if you know who this is. Um, and I'll know if you're cheating listening to the rest of this before you actually put the answer in. I know I have the sixth cent for these sorts of things. But do you know which driver that was that Honda had offered to Williams? It's quite interesting, but um, the driver that Honda had asked Williams to put in their car was Satori Nakajima. It was Kazuki's father. Um, yes, yeah, Satori Nakajima was a Honda protege, like Na- like Kazuki was a Toyota protege. Oh, so yeah. Japanese engine manufacturers trying to get their drivers into their into in Formula One, and. As I said, Satoure wanted to drive for Williams. It looked like it might happen, but in 1987, Frank Williams and Patrick Head had said no. They didn't want a paid driver or a contracted driver. They didn't know very well in none of their cars. And as a result, the Honda partnership had end, ended with Williams. And of course, the rest is history in terms of their success at McLaren. Um, but it didn't hurt Williams too much, of course, going over to Renault in the early night in that time. And obviously it worked out well for them. So didn't really hurt them like it did back in 2008 but just to talk about Williams we're talking about how much the philosophy has changed it's completely gone 180 on them in terms of paid drivers and it's really I mean we talk about a team like Williams it's almost like a meme or a joke now that they have a paid driver in their car all the time and that in some cases they're having two for quite a few seasons in the 2010s and this was something that was completely unheard of for Williams. Their tactic was to bring in the best possible driver they could get to win world championships. And they were very successful at it for a long, long time. And we talked about the list of drivers they had. Nigel Mansell, Ayrton Senna, Damon Hill, Jacques Villeneuve, amongst others. And this was something that, back if you'd have told them back in 97, not only would this be the last world championship that they'd won to this day, but also that their philosophies would completely change and be motivated by money just to ensure investment and the survival of the team as a franchise in Formula One, they would never have believed you. And I'm going to look, go through a list of a few names of drivers that since Kazuki Nakajima in 2008, paid drivers, if you like. And of course, we it's a bit unfair to refer to these guys as paid drivers, but there was definitely a huge financial influence that led to them getting these seats at Williams. For example, in 2011... Nico Hulkenberg, or Ricardo calls him Hulkenberg, if anyone's watched um, Drive to Survive, I definitely recommend that. It's quite funny, Danny Ricardo saying that. Um, but Hulkenberg had lost his seat in 2011 to the GOAT himself, Pastor Maldonado. Oh, Pastor Maldonado, the last race winner for Williams, may I add? That is absolutely right. The GOAT himself in 2012, winner of the Spanish Grand Prix, the last most recent win for Williams, keeping back yeah. home favourite Fernando Alonso in the Ferrari, who was in the middle of a championship battle himself, and uh, certainly uh, amongst his finer drives. But of course, we, all of you, we all know Pasta really is the real goat of Formula One for many reasons. 
and of course, if you, if for those of you really young fans that don't know much about Pastor Maldonado, just type in Pastor Maldonado compilation on YouTube, and uh, that'll be interesting for a good twenty minutes. That'll keep you laughing. Yeah, you can keep for a while. Loved Pastor Maldonado. It's hilarious. Definitely a fun driver. And a good sport as well, of course. He got a lot of stick for some of his antics, but he definitely really took it in his stride. He never really yeah, affected he, him. He hit Lewis once in Valencia, I think. And then, yes. Like, since, then, since then, he was tainted within my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think the most famous crash I remember was the one in Bahrain with Gutierrez in the Salva. And he come out the pit lane, Gutierrez, come across to Maldonado, and Maldonado just completely flipped his car over. Is that that was it? Is that, is that... Whoa, what was that? Yeah, I think it was 2014. <laughs> I think, it was it 20? No, it might have been something, yeah. It was 2014. 2014, yeah, the duel in the desert between the two Mercedes drivers. Yeah. People remember it for that. I remember it for that crash with Gutierrez and Maldonado. <laughs> Completely flipped over that salve. It was absolutely... And the team were like, we just put new tyres on that car. What the hell is he doing? Yeah. And, uh... But yeah, obviously, Maldonado had his backing from a Venezuelan company, PDVSA. Massive financial backing that Williams needed. Bruno Senna, of course, the uh, nephew of the late, great Ayrton Senna, had a lot of financial backing from his partners in Brazil to to actually go alongside Maldonado. So they had two paid drivers in their own team, Williams, at the time in 2012. In more recent years, we see the likes of Sergei Sorokin, a driver who was very successful in Formula 2, had a lot of backing from Russian investors. And of course... Lance Stroll, who partnered him in 2018, we should say, and had his, as, as we said, his seat of Williams very much was supported by his father, Lawrence Stroll, who had put a serious amount of investment into that team and was one of the guys that really, or family, I should say, that really had serious investment uh, plans in Formula One, of course, something Williams probably, in hindsight, could have took more advantage for before he moved on to Racing Point. But of course, we'll mention that a bit later on. I mean, Courtney, in your mind, we, we talk about paid drivers. Is that something that you'd be surprised to talk about or think about when you when you associate Williams in Formula One that they'd be the sort of team that would end up going from champions and the dominant force in the sport for the most part of the nineties to a team that was pretty much reliant on paid drivers in order to continue their existence in Formula 1 in the manner in which they have? Well, it it just, it just highlights the situation, you know. You, again, like of any sport, your your image, a lot of it, a lot, a lot of, you know, if you're going to be desirable in sport, you know, to join any team, you need to have an image about you, a culture. And the, the fact that They've gone from a, a team that was the team that pretty much every driver at the time wanted to drive for. That they were the team, okay, there or thereabouts, okay. So then, for them to go from that to having to rely on paid drivers to survive, it just highlights the decline. So you, you like, if you imagine, you know, for the younger fans out there, if you if you could imagine what ten years down the line where Red Bull are relying on paid drivers to survive. Yeah, give that a good fault. And uh, that's how um, older fans or even older fans in us feel about Williams. Yeah, it certainly was a decline for them. And as you said, they went from the team that everybody wanted to drive for to becoming 
a team that was seen almost like the first milestone or the first stepping stone into Formula One for a lot of young drivers and an opportunity for paid drivers to really get into the sport. And of course, a lot of those, with the exception of Lance Stroll, have just faded away um, into doing other things, whether it's because other paid drivers with more talent were getting the opportunity or the money ran out. You know, less to be said on that one, the better, I suppose. But that's kind of the reality for Williams. It's almost as if they've been going around with no realistic ambition. Not that that's not what they want. Of course, they're going to be ambitious. They're going to try as hard as they can, and they're great people. If you ever go to the Williams factory, I definitely recommend it for a tour. The infrastructure is incredible. You'd never believe it was a team down on their luck like Williams have been. And you would definitely see evidence of why they were the force that they were back in the 80s and 90s. It's definitely there for you. I'd definitely recommend it. But Well, in the last few years, it, it seems they've just been there to make up the numbers almost. Like at, the, at the start of the um, of the V6 Turbo era, with, you know, with the Mercedes engine being strong, Williams were the best, were the second best team of um, Mercedes power team. Yeah. Absolutely. There was a race or two where they even gave Mercedes a month for their money. They certainly did. And um, and I think it's worth mentioning about that. Of course, that decline that they had, they were third in the Constructors' Championship for two years in a row in 2014 and 2015. But then, as we said, after losing Bottas and Felipe Massa, in particular, the car just declined in performance they ended up finishing in fifth place for 16 and 17 and then they had this slump in 18 19 which i think we'll get onto in the latter parts of the episode but another thing that really impacted williams and i think impacted a lot of independent teams for and in a way you could argue that this is one of the leading contributors to the gulf that we have today between the top teams and the rest of the pack almost the formula one versus the formula 1.5 if you like was the 2013 Concord Agreement. Now, for those of you that don't know, the Concord Agreement is basically the agreement of terms that the teams will negotiate with Formula One and the FIA to participate in Formula One. Now, in 2013, Bernie Eccleston was very much at the helm of the sport, and I think it's fair to say he had very much contrasting ideas on how the sport should be governed, on which teams should be prioritised over others, compared to what Liberty Media are trying to achieve now in terms of a level playing field. And this agreement itself, Courtney, wasn't necessarily a Concord agreement per se. It was more like a series of bilateral deals that kind of just manifested into one big uh, agreement that we call the Concord Agreement. The terms of this agreement had really bound the F, the teams F1 and the FIA together agreed during the 2013 season, it pretty much led to the financial inequality between the big teams and the independent teams in F1 that we know today. Now, one of the big terms of this agreement was how the money or the revenue that's generated throughout the season is distributed between the teams, almost a bit like prize money, but a bit on top of that. And this agreement had massively favoured the bigger teams like Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull in particular, those three teams got a huge lion's share of the money that was being distributed out. I mean, we can name a few examples. I mean, Ferrari's the no-brainer on this one. Ferrari, at the time, and this is something that has been reviewed in recent years, they used to get $40 million a year for their historical significance in Formula One. Now, Williams was another team that got a similar payment to this. 
but Ferrari, like Williams, received a historical team bonus. Ferrari had a separate payment of $40 million for just being Ferrari because of how huge that they were for the sport. Now, $40 million, um, respectively, is almost around 40% of the revenue that one of the smaller teams in the paddock would get at the time for participating and being there. Ferrari just got that as a one-off payment before a wheel was even turned. And this Concord agreement rewarded teams like Ferrari, Mercedes and Red Bull, regardless of their performance in the championship. If Ferrari had come last, hypothetically, there's a good chance that they would have absolutely got more money than almost anybody else, despite who won the league, uh, despite who won the the, uh, championship. And Williams themselves didn't do too badly on this. They... As we mentioned, they secured an annual historic team bonus of around $10 million a year, which is understandable. But as we mentioned before, because of the amount of investment the bigger teams had, we saw from 2014, when teams were not too far apart, the gulf between them got wider and wider and wider to a point where teams like Mercedes, Ferrari and Red Bull boasted a budget three times as big as a team like Williams or Racing Point. Williams, Williams have become a mere customer now. Yes. And, uh, and as we said, these initiatives that they had to adopt, in the past, it's always been a struggle for them. Of course, we should mention, as we said, we will do at the end of the podcast as well, that there is sign for hope in this regard. And we'll get into why we feel that there is a little later. But obviously, with the money situations, one thing that we should mention is how significant partnerships are in Formula One between investors and teams. And Williams have been probably the most famous of the teams or most widely reported of partnerships that have fallen away. And one of those that was very significant was the BMW partnership. Now, earlier in the episode, we talked about how BMW was an engine provider for Williams since the year 2000, and this ran on for a partnership of six years. And the reason why it broke up was BMW wanted to secure a long-term takeover of the Williams team. They still wanted to use Williams branding, but they wanted to have overall control of the team to be like the BMW works team. It was always a dream of theirs to secure a works team in Formula One, and they wanted Williams to be that team to take over and obviously move long term. Williams really uh, was against this idea that to no surprise, they did not, they were not interested in this idea of being bought out by a manufacturer and becoming a part of their program rather than carrying on as an independent team. Unfortunately for Williams, as we said, the partnership broke up in 2006. BMW had bought the Sauber team that we knew as BMW Sauber, which I would say it wasn't ultimately successful. They had one win under Robert Kubica in 2008. And that season in particular, Courtney, if you remember the 2008 Canadian Grand Prix, Robert Kubica had a car underneath him after taking the lead in the championship, that had every chance of going on to win that world championship that season. But, of course, as British fans will most fondly know, that that didn't work out for BMW. They prioritised development of their 2009 car amid the rule changes, rather than continuing to develop the 2008 car. And it really fell fell away. away. It fell away for them. And, of course, we know Lewis Hamilton is that clock. Yes, it was. And uh, Lewis went on to win that world championship. What could, what could have been for BMW and uh, that gamble as well didn't pay off for them because they left the sport after 2009 
amid poor showing after the rule changes and they weren't prepared to continue. But because of that, it's interesting to see what could have happened if BMW and Williams had agreed on a takeover and what they could have done with Williams. We know we already cited how powerful they were as an engine supplier for Williams and to have a bit more control and a bit more ownership of that team might have been able to provide Williams with the opportunity to get back to the very top of the sport. We'll never know. And because they lost BMW's partnership, this also affected them in terms of losing title sponsors. We mentioned, as of course, you mentioned uh, a few companies in particular, one of which was HP, Hewitt-Packard, the computer company. And they left Williams after that partnership ended in 2006. And they were very much instrumental as a title sponsor in that team in terms of a technical partnership. And we see a lot of technical partnerships now in Formula 1. Obviously, Red Bull famously with the Infinity Partnership. Um, McLaren having similar partnerships as well. As well as, as, you know, Ferrari have had theirs too. And Mercedes, of course. We shouldn't forget Mercedes technical partnerships as well. And this was a theme. A lot of teams were building up, and manufacturer teams were building up their technical partnerships and financial prowess for years to come. But Williams were competing against them as an independent company. And as a result, they just didn't have the financial power or resources available to compete with them, which, as we mentioned, following the global economic crash in 2007, really detrimented their progress and caused them to fall into the midfield, a position which they've not really escaped from. If anything, it's got worse. Um, Exactly. And the exception, as we said, 2009 Williams, it did improve for them, but it was only a brief one until 2014. It just never really... They were never able to fight the big teams on the same level playing field. And another opportunity where I think partnerships that were offered to Williams really went astray for them because they denied them was the Stroll partnership. Now, we mentioned Lance Stroll joining them in 2017 with financial backing from his dad, uh, Lawrence Stroll. Initially, Williams received a lot of criticism for signing Lance Stroll with the financial backing of his father. However, this was a necessary move. We've already cited and talked about how Williams struggled financially and how they needed to find new revenue streams, mostly in the form of paid drivers and sponsors, to really get them to not just compete on a level playing field, but just to try and survive in Formula One. It was that serious for them. They literally had no choice. And this the Stroll family was as we mentioned, a family that wanted to seriously invest in Formula One and they had the financial might to back it up. We're talking about a multi-billionaire in Lawrence Stroll. Would have easily made Williams the richest independent team in the sport, perhaps with the exception of Red Bull, if you counted them as an independent team. And Lawrence Stroll himself was always keen on trying to acquire the Williams team. But on many occasions, Williams resisted these kind of efforts. And combined with the poor results that followed for the team the Stroll family had had enough the Williams partnership with them had ended and as we know Lawrence Stroll led the consortium that took over the Force India team in 2018 when they come under financial turmoil and then of course turning them into Racing Point and bringing his son Lance to partner Sergio Perez in 2019 and I think given what we know now Corny and we all see hindsight is 2020 especially in this case but the fact that Racing Point have now gone on to have a competitive car that we say we haven't seen much of 2020, but we know it's going to be good. The old pink W10 Mercedes, if you like. <laughs> and uh, 
the alignment with Aston Martin for 2021, as long with the uh, infrastructure changes at their factory with the new simulator for 2022 and etc. You could look at what Racing Point are getting from this stroll partnership and ownership and what Williams yeah. have lost out on. And well, they've got a positive momentum that Williams really need. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that once again, because Williams wanted to remain independent, and there's nothing wrong with that. You have to admire that that you know they want to keep it in their own image, which is absolutely fine. And there's no reason why they shouldn't be entitled to do that. But unfortunately, given the financial plights that they found themselves in and still do today, it one does tend to wonder what success they would have had with BMW, but also what success that they could be having or could be experiencing. I mean, they could be the team that's really challenging the top three if they allowed Lawrence Stroll to take over and really yeah. seriously invest in that team. But it hasn't happened. And in the current climate, you would argue that he's definitely the sort of investor that they would need. And they're hopefully trying to look for. Um, and, and this is the reality. And I think we haven't mentioned much on this episode about the influence of Sir Frank Williams and his daughter, Claire. And we know that Sir Frank has been an instrumental figure of that team. I mean, he was central to their success. Without Frank, there would be no success story at Williams. And henceforth, we wouldn't be talking about them in the same way that we are now. And I don't think it's fair for people to look at his daughter, Claire, and say she's not capable. She's not at the level she, of other team bosses. She's not the person to take Williams forward. If anything, I think she's done an immaculate job under the yeah. circumstances. I think a lot of more qualified people have fallen to the wayside in a lot less detrimental positions. And I think Claire, and I think, you know, I hope that in the future, Williams do find a way to get the investment they need and be able to move forward. And Claire will be instrumental in that, in the way that her dad was for the team. She, she was just there at the wrong time. You know, she took over at a bad time for Williams. It was just timing. Yeah, and it was an impossible job for any team, but yeah. any owner. And uh, as I said, I think despite that, despite these issues, Claire has been able to sort of deal with that in the best way she can. And I do hope for her sake and the team's sake they can move forward. And uh, I think that ties us into the last things we want to talk about. But the slumps that they've had. Now, the slump that they had for the last quarter of a decade has really been edified by the slump they had in 2018 and 2019. Now, the 2018 season, Courtney, was the worst on record for Williams since it began as a constructor back in 1978. Despite initial confidence of a turnaround could be achieved in 2019 that poor record was then taken away the next season in 2019 Williams finished last for the second consecutive season scoring only one point from Robert Kubica's 10th place in the crazy 2019 German Grand Prix as we mentioned before prior to this slump Williams had finished in the top five of the Constructors Championship for four years in a row Finishing third. Okay. Last in, season, you know, considering they have a, they had a driver of George Russell's talent, it just shows how far beyond they were. Exactly. And this poor form themselves culminated in an overall operating loss of £12.9 million back in 2019 that we've mentioned already. Uh, the team itself had put this down to poor performance and a decline in revenue. Of course, naturally, that's going to happen. I mean... We talked about this season. I think the one thing that really summed this all up for Williams, this slump in 2019 in particular, was the disaster um, of, before the season had started, the disaster they faced where Williams were not able to 
have a car ready to run for the first two and a half days of testing, which resulted in a technical restructure, including the departure of Chief Technical Officer Paddy Lowe, uh, two years after he joined them from Mercedes as a champion. I mean, that alone, Courtney, I, I don't know how much you remember of that. I mean, it wasn't too long ago, but the embarrassment and the anguish that they would have faced not being able to bring a car to testing that was able to be ready. I mean, the team was there, the personnel was there, the drivers were there, and all they could do was stand around in the garage and just watch everybody else already steal a march on them. And the car itself wasn't great. It was poor. They were a long way back. Two and well, a half... Rough. Sorry? It was rust. Yeah. It was rust car. Yeah, two and a half days of testing wouldn't have made much of a difference to Williams. It would have just given them more data on a car that they already knew was going to be lagging at the back of the field. And for considering that how confident they were that this was going to be achieved, a lot of people were talking this up. To go, fall so hard on their face like that really was uh, a real blow to their confidence. And uh, as we mentioned before, this was a team that was used to success and trying everything possible to try and be successful. But the reality was it was probably mostly down to poor decision making in terms of partnerships and just factors that weren't out of the, weren't in their control, like money and you know crashes around the world for businesses and investment that just was, really wasn't there. And that that was the reality for Williams. I mean, the COVID nineteen situation this year hasn't really helped. I mean, Williams were very confident that they were going to improve. The testing program certainly suggested during pre-season testing, and we talked about this in, the, in our first episodes, that we felt that Williams, while still fighting at the back, they didn't look like they had a car that was obvious to be the slowest car. They looked, they might have still yeah, had were, the slowest they were car. At least, they were at least in a position to fight. Yes, and we were certainly looking forward to seeing what George Russell in particular could do in a car that we knew he outperformed on a weekly basis by a long way and was trying to hang on to the rest of the field, but he could actually fight them in the way that Lando Norris and Alex Albon could in their respective cars. Of course, not to the same level, but still fight nonetheless. And unfortunately, the COVID-19 situation in part has robbed us of this, at least until now, where we're literally weeks away now from the first race, which is now set in stone. We're so close. We are so close. But the COVID-19 situation, as we said, robbed us and Williams of this opportunity to really see if they if their early test pace was going to come to fruition and if they could really demonstrate that they had made progress. I personally believe they have, but how much we may never know because of obviously what's happening now and teams have more time to develop this than that. We may have a completely different pecking order to what we would have had in Australia under more normal circumstances, if you like. But as well as that impact that Williams had, this was another example of lost opportunity for revenue and obviously probably has served as a catalyst for Williams to have to seek external investment. This was something they probably would have had to have looked for anyways, but perhaps the COVID-19 situation has put them in a position where it's all had to be rushed. They haven't got no choice now. The Rocket situation, obviously leaving their partnership with Rocket after two years didn't work out for them and now they have to seek further investment. But I think one way we can end this episode, and I appreciate that a lot of Williams fans and Formula One fans have listened to this, and it's mostly been a, a dreary doom and gloom analysis of Williams's decline over the last quarter of a decade. And it really is a shame that it's come 
to this situation, you really have to look through history to wonder how Williams, a team that couldn't put a foot wrong as late as 1997, 20, 23 years later, to the point where they're literally hanging on to their Formula One futures by the thinnest of threads. We should put out a note on this episode to finish it off in a positive manner. There is hope for Williams. And the next few minutes, the last few minutes of the podcast, I'll just lay that out in what form that comes. But Williams as a team, they've got good team members. They've got good drivers. They've got a great infrastructure up there with some of the best that Formula One has to offer. They really does. And there are reasons to be positive. I mean, the cost cap, we should mention, the $145 million cost cap, which is going to be lower to as little as $130 million in the next couple of years. That's going to help them. We talk about the big teams like Ferrari, Red Bull, Mercedes, operate on budgets for around $350 million a year. Now, they're going to have to reduce that by two-thirds, 66% uh, to meet the new standards. So those teams and other teams as well that have that investment are going to struggle to try and operate in a capacity where it only costs them a third of what it would normally cost them. Williams already know how to do that. If anything, this cost cap means that they're, they're still not going to be able to spend up to that cost cap. They're going to have to spend a bit more to meet that. So they'll have the added advantage that we mentioned before, that they'll be used to that and they'll be fine in terms of what they want to do moving forward. It might give them an opportunity to recruit more people from bigger teams that can't hold on to them because they just yeah. can't afford to. They're not allowed to. Sorry, you were saying, Courtney? I said they'll be picking up scraps. Well, I mean, <laughs> scraps might be a bit harsh, but I understand what the concept, <laughs> what you mean. Certainly not the stowaways. It, as I said, it's mostly going to be the people that do offer amounts to a team. But when you have to downsize your workload, let's say proportion to the budget by two thirds, that's a really hard thing to do. And the manufacturer teams are going to have to find cheaper alternatives and the one thing Williams do struggle with, and the one thing that they, sorry, not struggle, I should, actually that's wrong, I should rephrase that. The one thing Williams finds that they're stronger and why they do well is they manufacture a lot of their own parts. They're not like some of the other teams like Haas, for example, or even Racing Point to some degree. We talk about Racing Point, but they buy a lot of standard manufactured parts, stuff they don't make in their own factory, um, including as much as the chassis and brakes. Um, Huss, very, very notable about their issues with their brake manufacturers. They've had problems with those and they've struggled with. Williams build that car from scratch. They are pretty much an independent team as you get. They almost operate like a works team. The only reason why they're not is because they use customer engines. And that is it. Yeah. That is the only reason why they're not a works team. But they manufacture every nut and bolt and piece of you know, carbon fibre on that car is made in the factory. And that is something that's going to serve as a huge strength for them moving forward. Of course, we stress Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull operate in a similar way, but they're still going to have to find a way to reduce their operating budget by two thirds compared to Williams, who are going to have to spend a bit more to try and meet that. Another reason why we should also look feel positive about Williams' future is the aero regulations that were meant to come in in 2021. They've been pushed back to 2022 now with the aim of equalising the field, bringing the field a lot closer together because it's quite sporadic and spaced out even now with the front guys as much as a second and a half to two seconds faster than the slowest cars, assuming that Williams are the slowest. 
And that, those rule changes, when they do come into effect, they're going to simplify the cars in narrow dynamic perspective. They're going to make them more, less susceptible, I should say, not more, less susceptible to the wake of cars in front of them. And it's going to allow a team like Williams to not have to worry about throwing massive amounts of money to develop their cars because it's not going to be easy to develop these cars. So again, it, it provides an opportunity for a team like Williams. If they can find the external inward investment that they're looking for to really try and meet these ambitions that they have of not just competing for points and podiums, but again, eventually in the next couple of years, maybe as far as wins and potentially world championships. And I know that sounds a bit far-fetched and like a pipe dream, but it really isn't. If Williams can secure that funding and really take advantage of these new cost cap rules and regulations that have been agreed on unanimously by the teams, there is a good chance that Williams, with the right personnel, could find their way back among the upper echelons of the Formula One pecking yeah, order. It's, um, it's the second chance for one or two teams. It's a saving grace. It really is. If Formula One carried on in the manner that it has been for at least another five, six years, Williams would be in a position where they'd have no choice but to sell part of their team, if not all of their team, and they may not exist in Formula One anymore. And that is a true shame. I think I yeah. speak for Formula One fans, whether you're new or whether you're old to Formula One, that Williams really does make up a huge chunk of Formula One's history of what makes it good. And despite their fall from the peak of the mountain to where they are now, where they're literally trying to climb it back up again, these rules and regulations serve almost as a godsend for them. And I hope for everyone involved there that this could be the start of something new. And I do hope that when the season does start again soon at the beginning of July, that Williams are competitive because I think the important thing for them now this season, whatever remains of it, is to be attractive to external investors, to give them the money that they need to be able to bring themselves back up. Because the, the return is, is that if Williams are able to compete and improve and do better, there's going to be more revenue streams for them, which in turn would allow them to invest more in their car, develop it more, and slowly but surely, in a way that McLaren is doing, and of course Racing Point slash Aston Martin are too, to compete with the big boys. So, as I said, I know we talked about this episode of a lot of doom and gloom for Williams and obviously why things have gone bad to worse for them, but now they've been through all of that. If they can secure that investment, there's definitely a good chance that they can try and find progressive measures to move forward. And I really hope that it does happen. As a huge Formula 1 fan, I really do hope that they can find a way to get there. They've got the people, they've got the tools, they've got the drivers for the time being. Just hope that they're able to get that investment to put it all together. So, um, yeah, uh, I think that's probably a good way to finish off this episode. I mean, yeah, it's, I know, a high. it's a lot to think about, guys. And uh, I do appreciate, I know it's probably a lot of me going on about different things in my opinion and of course I mean Courtney and I most of these ideas we put through together anyway so most of the stuff that I'd have said Courtney would definitely pretty much have said it if I hadn't but um yeah pretty much <laughs> but uh yeah let us know what you think guys I mean Courtney is there anything you wanted to mention before we sign off no as, as I've said um I think it's best to end it on a high because Williams are one of the, you know, one of the household names of Formula One, and uh, it'd be a great shame for us to lose them. It really would, and uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic. I think that these changes have come at the right time for them, and as long as they can secure that investment, I think that they 
the only way is up for them. They really, I think, I do believe that they can get back to where they belong in Formula One. It certainly has not been the same without them at the top. But um, nonetheless, guys, those were our reasons as we talked about why we've what we felt contributed to the decline of Williams since their last success in '97. But of course, if there's anything that we've missed out, let us know what you think. Put in the comment section anything that you felt we've missed, anything you agreed with, or anything you disagreed. Um, absolutely fine. But of course, keep it constructive, please. We're not really uh, going to be going into that realms of our YouTube comment section. And of course, if you're listening no, to us... Social media is negative enough as it is at the moment, so <laughs> you... we want positivity. Yes. And of course, guys, um, if you're listening to us on one of your favourite podcasting platforms, not necessarily YouTube, you can message us on Instagram and Twitter. Of course, the same address, dnf one underscore F1 podcast. Um, definitely let us know what you think of these episodes and of course make sure to like share and subscribe to the channel we only have 28 subscribers but i tell you what i did not think after 16 episodes that we'd have that many i thought we'd have a lot less than that so i'm actually really happy that you guys are supporting us considering the season hasn't even started yet honestly we, we plan to take things to the next step once the season starts and we have some proper content absolutely and i'm really looking forward to it guys and i hope you are too of course let's not forget season starts uh, the weekend july 5th in austria that's now set in stone and i think in the next episode of this podcast i think the build-up for the season really needs to start and we're going to be talking yeah. about the races that are going to be coming up, they're going to be coming up thick and fast, of course. So literally, we're going to be, as Courtney, you mentioned last week's episode, we literally were starved of it and we were standing indoors. And now, instead of going out post the uh, lockdown easing, we're, we're going to be indoors watching. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be indoors watching Formula One. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think all that's left to say, guys, is we obviously... Tune in for the future podcast episode. Make sure to check out some of the others that we've talked about. There's plenty of good content that we've put out that if you haven't seen it already, make sure to let us know what you think. And if you're enjoying it, like, share and subscribe to the channel. Really does help us out a lot. And uh, yeah, I think the next episode we'll talk about the build up to the 2020 F1 season, what we've got to look forward to and who we think are the drivers that are really going to make their mark. What is there going to be a revised pecking order based on what we sit in tested? quite possibly, but we'll discuss that in the next episode. So all that's left to say is take care of yourself, guys. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the DNF1 podcast, and we will see you very, very soon in the next episode. Podcast Network.